This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, welcome to this week's Money and Markets podcast. I'm Dan Coatesworth, and with me this week to talk through a bumper crop of earnings is Danny Hewson. Hi there, Danny. Hi, Dan. Yes, we've got the first update from big tech with both Microsoft and Alphabet beating expectations. Plus, First Republic sends shivers back through the markets as it reveals more than $100 billion was withdrawn during last month's crisis of confidence. Now, we've had updates from a whole host of global consumer giants, from Nestle to Coca-Cola, and it seems brand is a powerful thing, with customers prepared to keep paying more for the things they love, despite the cost of living crisis. The UK's competition watchdog's been flexing its muscles, blocking Microsoft's takeover of gaming giant Activision Blizzard. And it's also been given new powers to tackle businesses that carry fake reviews, which are having big implications for the consumer and have resulted in big fines for companies like Amazon and Meta. I've been talking to Ritu Vahora from T. Rowe Price about the latest events on the market. So absolutely shed loads to get through. And we're going to kick things off with big tech. And Dan, since it's also a verb, we're going to Google it. You're going to start with Alphabet. Yeah, so just for those who don't know, Alphabet is Google's parent company. Um, It's just reported its earnings and beat expectations for both revenue and profit. And it also said it was going to undertake a $70 billion share buyback. So um, if you think about Google, they own YouTube is one of their key sources of income, and that's from online advertising. And there's been lots of fears that uh, sort of a gloomier economic outlook would result in a slowdown in advertising. But actually, YouTube's ad revenue came in at $6.69 billion. So that's an important beat after going through... I think probably several tough quarters. The Alphabet's Google Cloud unit also turned a profit for the first time with revenue in that segment up by 28%. That's the fastest of any of the company's main business segments. So, I mean, the shares reacted to, um, you know, by 4% climb uh, after those numbers came out. But actually, the gains are sort of trimmed back slightly after the, uh, the conference call with executives warning that, capital spending would increase this year um, because it's spending more money on things like data center capacity to handle the higher demands of artificial intelligence, which is something that um, Alphabet wants to become a much bigger player in. Yeah, we also had um, a very similar picture from Microsoft. Um, revenues were up 7% to $52.9 billion in the last quarter. So that just sort of inched past um, analyst estimates. Now, when you think about Microsoft, it's got quite a lot of legacy stuff attached to it. So software, and I don't think anyone would be surprised to find that uh, software sales haven't exactly been particularly stellar, but... But this update showed that they weren't quite as bad as some analysts had expected. Think about things like Microsoft Windows, also Teams. Um, But one of its sort of big areas of growth, which is still growing, though not quite as quickly as it has been growing, is that cloud, which Dan's just been talking about in relation to Alphabet. So, 
cloud is still generating a huge amount of revenue for Microsoft. But I think it's been really interesting taking a look at the earnings from these two Czech giants because um, there was some you know, positive share price moves immediately afterwards. There was an earnings beat. But I think a lot of it is a bit of smoke and mirrors because actually the numbers weren't that great. And it was really interesting that chief executive of Microsoft, Satya Nadella, really focused in on AI, made a huge song and dance about it, about the potential going forward to generate revenue. And we know that um, Microsoft has partnered with chat GPT creator OpenAI. And it said today, Microsoft, that since it had sort of spruced up the Bing search engine with this artificial intelligence technology, the number of people downloading Bing has absolutely shot up. And Bing, of course, compared to Google, has always been sort of the poor cousin. Google has really monetized the search engine business. And Microsoft, with its Bing thing, wants to grab more and more of the market. And a lot of people, I think, find chat GPT perhaps a little nicer to use than Alphabet's answer, which is Bard. Have you used either, Dan? No, I haven't. No, but obviously this... Alphabet's Bard system is, didn't really get off to a very good start. I, I, it's clear from its results that it's spending a considerable amount of money. But I wonder whether um, some of these sort of you know, services have been perhaps unleashed on the public kind of before they were really ready. Um, you know, I think when when Microsoft said it was putting money into ChatGPT and you know, partnering with it, it sort of put pressure on rivals to come out and do stuff and say, look, you know, we're doing stuff as well. But yeah. You know, Perhaps not not quite sure it's ready, and and the idea that everyone's now using um, you know the Bing search engine. I always remember someone saying to me that the the only people who ever ever used Bing were ones who bought a Microsoft computer and it was it was downloaded on it, and they used Bing to search for how do you get how do I get onto Google? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so actually they've got some proper proper customers now. It's quite interesting. It's sort of a, a real reversal of fortunes. It is quite interesting. And the chat GPT thing is incredibly clever and you can do incredible things with it. But I know that there's been some concern about the advancements of AI and whether or not um, our old friend Elon Musk was just calling for a halt to any sort of further generations of the technology so that his companies could play catch up or whether or not he is really seriously concerned about the potential impact on civilization. Well, I don't know. You'd have to ask him. Maybe he'll come and give us an interview, Dan. Um, But I do know that they're spending a whole lot of money on this. And it will be interesting to see how investors feel about that when they're really focused on profit at the moment rather than growth. And just while we're talking about Microsoft and money, uh, just before we recorded this, we got an update from the UK competition watchdog. So the CMA has said that it will block Microsoft's uh, deal to buy the maker of Call of Duty, which is a really popular game. The maker is Activision Blizzard. Big concerns about 
how competition would be able to flourish in cloud gaming if Microsoft were to take over this massive company. Now, Microsoft has says that it say, remains fully committed to the acquisition and will appeal, but it's a really interesting move. And it did look right up until today that there might have been a meeting of minds and that this deal might well have been able to go through. But uh, clearly it's something that uh, investors will be taking a long look at because that is an awful lot of money that Microsoft has got on the line here. So another thing that's been sort of catching people's eye on the markets was the update from First Republic Bank. Um, you know, actually, we, over the last sort of week or so, we've had updates from pretty much all the sort of the key banks in the US. The big ones, the Wall Street banks, uh, seem to be doing okay. I mean, there's positive share price reactions to, to them, but you know, Goldman Sachs, um, Morgan Stanley, now they're both reported to sort of a drop in earnings. But, um, you know, with Morgan Stanley, actually, it's got this wealth management business It's helping to sort of cushion the, the blow. But the real the real sort of worries are with regional banks in the US. Here, you know, earnings are under real pressure. It's costing a lot more money for these banks to bring in savers and deposits. And um, First Republic Bank saw its shares fall 50% in a day, um, you know, after sort of saying that it's seen a big sort of slump in deposits. Now, customers have withdrawn $100 billion during the last month's turmoil. And now, of course, there's this sort of worries that is this going to be the next bank to, to fail after the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. So um, now we, all these sort of worries about the banking sector again, of course, that has a read across to other territories. And, and in Europe, we saw shares in UK banks um, fall after these results. But actually, the, the, you know, as always, there's the sort of pockets of good news. Um, and there's a bank in California called PacWest. Um, now, it, it's, it's had, you know, shares have been under pressure, just like much the rest of the sector, but um, they jumped 16% in after-hours trading after it reported £1.8 billion, in, uh, sorry, $1.8 billion in deposit inflows since the 20th of March. So um, it's it's kind of like here that you know the, the weak are getting weaker, um, but there will still be some that will certainly survive and also thrive if they're going to benefit from some of their rivals falling by the wayside. When you're talking about the weak getting weaker, weaker, here is an example of the strong most definitely getting stronger because we've had um, earnings updates from a whole host of consumer giants, Coke, Pepsi, Nestle, Procter and Gamble. And I think most people out there who are really thinking about their budgets, who are thinking about what they spend at the supermarket might be surprised to hear that for the most part, these great big food behemoths have been able to continue to lift prices and not see any real major damage in terms of sales drops. How much are you prepared to pay for your favorite snack, Dan? Or do you, do you take a look? Do you see if it's gone up? Well, yeah, I mean, it's not hard to see that they've all pretty much gone up. But I guess, you know, I Sometimes if it, if it's something I really like, I probably would be prepared to pay that higher price. But um, I guess it's, you know, everyday things, maybe like shampoo or something. Happy to go for a cheaper alternative if I can see one. Well, that seems to be being played out in these results because it's the likes of sort of 
Coca-Cola. And if you're a Coca-Cola drinker or a Pepsi drinker, you're probably going to balk if someone tries to hand you a can of the other one. That's certainly something that happens in my family. And if I brought a bottle of, you know, some supermarket's own cola, I think that there would be rebellion from the eldest who's currently going through her GCSEs and therefore feels that she is entitled to have anything at all that she wants. But we have seen um, the likes of Procter & Gamble saying that they are finding that volumes have fallen away. So whereas Pepsi's actually seen volumes increase, uh, and um, sorry, Coca-Cola's seen volumes increase, Pepsi's seen volumes fall teeny tiny bit, same with Nestle. Um, What's happened with Procter & Gamble is that some of its brands have seen big falls. So I think where people can trade down and, and aren't so worried about it, they're doing that. Maybe, you know, what they use in their washing machine or maybe what they use on their hair. But when it comes to those little luxuries, people are being quite steadfast. They're, they're making sure that they've got just that little bit in the budget to be able to allow them to do that. That said, there have been warnings pretty much across the board with all of these bosses playing really close attention to shopper behavior because, of course, they don't want to see shoppers disappear and never come back because they're all about sales. Um, I think what's really interesting for me, though, about Coca-Cola is that while it's been sort of putting up prices, it hasn't been cutting back on marketing spend because it really does play into a lifestyle. That brand power is about appealing to people really on a real basic level about that sort of Instagram generation where they will be photographed with their can of drink of choice. So it's sort of quite a masterclass really in brand power. Yeah, I mean, I guess Coke is a perfect product to talk about. It's, I think anyone who, if you if you bought a, a supermarket version of it, it tastes just different. You know, there's no mm-hmm. one has been able to sort of match that taste, I think. Um, I, I mean, it's quite interesting. You, you, you see sort of results from, um, you know, McDonald's, and everyone's always talking about, you know, what's the Big Mac secret sauce? That, you know, what's the recipe for that? And there, there's certain, you know, there's a reason why some of these companies are are giants. Um, they've cracked a formula, and they know that, and they just don't want to sort of let on how they've done it. Um, and there will always be an imitation, but no, no one can match it. But, you know, there's this idea that when, you, you know, you, 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 you use a trusted brand, know exactly what you're paying for and how much you're willing to pay and i think this is something that the the uk competition regulators is is acutely concerned about um because we've had some developments in with regards to um sort of fake reviews for products so that so the, the government's come out and said um yeah we're really worried about the number of fake reviews that you can see when you're trying to buy goods online um, you know, particularly, you know, certainly seen it myself when I've used you know, platforms like Amazon and eBay. Um, you read some of those reviews, and you think, okay, well, this, you know, everything is uniformly positive. Like, what, 
it, it seems so <laughs> obvious that some, you know, it's too good to be true. So you think, okay, well, someone's clearly must have been paid to write a positive review here, particularly when, um, I don't know, some of the things that they used to describe, like saying that, oh, oh, the cardboard box was was that the, the product came in. It was so it was so secure, and it's like, well, you wouldn't you wouldn't just put that in a review, would you? So, um, so I can see you writing a review like that, actually, Dan. I bet you're the kind of person that does go on these sites and say, oh yes, my lawnmower when it arrived, it was the perfect green color. Yes, no. So I, you know, the, the government is worried about this. It's not saying people are, are buying stuff; they're either being misled or, um, you know, the, the reviews that just don't really accurately describe the product. So what they're saying is that they're going to have to pass some some laws to, to you know to get tough on companies. And so they're now saying anyone that's caught um, sort of housing fake reviews here, particularly ones that where people have been paid to write something positive. Um, they could face up to 10% of global turnover as a fine for breaching the law. Uh, you know, that, that's quite incredible. If you think that you know, Amazon has got just over $500, uh, $500 billion of revenue, well, 10% of that is a very it's a meaningful number. So I think, you know, there's, there's, you know, hopefully this will go through sort of parliamentary approval as quickly as possible. Um, and then we should see some legislation brought in. But it's not just about um, sort of fake reviews here. They're going to also clamp down on subscription traps as well that cost consumers 1.6 billion a year. So really trying to make it easy for people to to opt out, to particularly you know if they've signed up for a, a free trial. Um, you know, a lot of companies will say, okay, well, you know, people sign up for a free trial. Let's hope that they forget about it and then they get lured in and then they're stuck in a subscription. But um, so really, yeah, it's, it's all, all power to the consumer. And, you know, it's, it's about time this has happened. With those subscriptions, have you ever noticed that it is incredibly easy to sign up to something, but when you want to unsubscribe, it's incredibly difficult. And I had a situation just recently with a big supermarket that I had a delivery thing with, so I would pay for a monthly pass and wanted to cancel that. And while there was a button to press on the website in order to sign up, there was not one to unsubscribe. So you had to go through the rigmarole of actually contacting customer services and it took weeks to get this thing sorted. It did get sorted, but it, it does just demonstrate that the consumer can find themselves in a tricky situation. So moves like this, I think, are really important. Um, markets have been relatively strong this year, but still plenty of dark clouds are gathering to discuss what's going on with equities and bonds, how to prepare for a recession, and what to think about with regard to portfolio construction. We are pleased to welcome Ritu Vahora on the show. She's an investment specialist at asset manager T. Rowe Price and spoke to Dan earlier this week. Let's hear what she had to say. So Ritu, there's been a pretty good start to the year for stock markets, but it does feel like there's still things that could go wrong. I mean, can I just sort of get an impression? Of, are you sort of optimistic about the rest of the year or are you a little bit more cautious about where things might go? Um, I think that's a great question. And I think there's a lot of moving parts when we look at the market right now. I mean, the key risks haven't gone away, right? It's still around inflation, central bank policy. And of course, we've got worries about a recession risk on the horizon. Um, and I think when I look at bond markets, they're definitely pricing in more of a recession. Um, but as you say, you know, when we look at stock markets, they've outperformed almost, you know, 7% in the US, 8.5% 8, 8. Um, globally. And I think they are 
being a bit complacent, if I'm honest. I think there's probably more downside risk, um, particularly for the stock market from here. I think if we if we look back over history, um, what might have worked in a portfolio in an environment like now? So I think obviously investors were looking for some sort of idea um, about, you know, if, if, if things are uncertain, is there sort of clearly parts of the market they should be in or not be in? Yeah, and I think, you know, if we think about 2022, that's probably a year most investors probably want to forget. Um, it was the worst year in history for both bonds and stocks, and they both moved down together. Now, historically, you know, bonds have diversified um, stock performance, but that broke down last year, and there was really very few places to hide. Um, and when we look forward to 2023 and, and the juncture we're at now, I think, you know, while history is good to look at and it often rhymes, you know, this this regime, I'd say, is quite different when we look at, you know, we're moving away from an environment of historically very low interest rates, um, low inflation, um, plenty of liquidity in terms of quantitative easing to a world of now where we're probably going to have higher rates, at least higher for longer. Um, inflation will probably come down from the elevated levels we are today. But, you know, debate, Daniel, about whether we get back to that 2%. Um, so in that environment, I think we are facing a different regime than maybe we've been used to over the last decade. Um, and I think that poses both um, challenges for investors, but also opportunities. Um, and if I go back to my earlier comments around recession risk, I think, you know, this is probably the most anticipated recession in history. But what we don't know is the timing of it and how deep it is. And I think, you know, when we think about how investors might want to position, you know, our view is we are more cautious, I'd say, at the top level. But at the same time, you, you do want to take some risks. So, um, you know, we are pretty underweight stocks at the moment. You know, we, we worry about um, growth risk down the line. And of course, as growth slow is that could impact earnings. And I think this, Daniel, is the most important point is, you know, earnings are still fairly optimistic. And I think there's pretty more downside as we see that earnings pressure come through. So I don't think stock markets are really pricing in a recession. Um, how we would balance that is, is, you know, maybe thinking about sort of high quality duration, um, you know, in terms of government bonds. So things like U.S. Uh, 10 year treasuries. Um, and if we look back in history, you know, every time you've had a recession, bonds have outperformed stocks. So I think, you know, we could see that negative correlation reassert itself. Um, and in that position, I think bonds could act as a bit of ballast in portfolios. Um, I would also say, you know, given the, the high rates of interest you're getting in your cash account now, you know, if if you're invested, you know, stay invested. But if you have some cash um, that gives you some flexibility potentially to go into the market when we see further dislocations. Um, and I'd say within the stock market, you know, being positioned to things like dividend bank stocks, you know, the more defensive parts of the market um, probably makes sense at the moment. Well, see, so you mentioned about bonds there. And I know last year equities had a pretty miserable time, but bonds did as well. And it's very unusual to see them both fall together. So I think that there's going to be a lot of, um, investors who've had their confidence knocked a bit with bonds. I mean, it, it's and and certainly the questions I've been asked by lots of people is like, you know, should I sort of now think about walking away from bonds? They haven't done what they think, or uh, is is was last year just like something very very unusual? Um, and actually, do you think that you know if if you if you have had bonds in your portfolio, there's still merit in you know sticking with them for you know, for the reasons that they've been. Over the years, they've given that sort of bit of a portfolio cushion when times are sort of a, a harder. 
Yeah, that's a great question. And I think, you know, the point here is diversification, right? Diversification is critically important. And I think 2022, as you you outlined, was a particularly painful year. And I think if we go back to 1937, there's only three times in history that we've seen bonds and equities or stocks um, fall together. Um, And that typically happens when you have an inflation shock, right? So an inflation shock hurts bonds, but it also hurts stocks. You know, we talked about that earnings pressure. I think as we look forward from here, you know, inflation should come down from from the levels where it is today, but I don't think it'll be a smooth part. But I think that also means rates will be higher for longer. But I think we now move away from purely an inflation shock to a growth shock. And regime change really matters when you're thinking about the correlation between stocks and bonds. So I think last year was was an elevated correlation positively because of an inflation shock. I think this year is going to be more about the growth shock. And in that environment, I think bonds will reassert themselves as diversifiers in your portfolio. Um, And I think, you know, yes, if we look at where bonds were, you know, the past decade with rates, you know, close to zero, you know, you were getting very paltry income. But if we look at where we are today, you know, bonds are probably the most attractive they have been in a decade. Um, And I think this is a really good opportunity to lock in income for investors, but again, to provide that diversification. But what I would say is when you're thinking about your bond allocation, you know, historically, investors have thought about, you know, 60 percent stocks, 40 percent bonds. And they've done that by investing in traditional bonds. What I would say is, you know, we need to rethink that 60-40. It's it's thinking about going global in your bond diversification, particularly when we think about, you know, policy now um, is diverging between, you know, what's happening in the US, here in England, but also across the emerging markets, which arguably are further ahead in their, in their hiking cycle. So I think it's about um, diversifying that, you know, thinking about areas like emerging market bonds where you're getting much uh, higher yields. But at the same time, you know, thinking about liquid alternatives, so, you know, flexible bond strategies or or even multi-asset total return strategies that can really provide that buffer um, if we go into a recession. For those investors who probably have a bit more of a risk tolerance, you know, an area we're finding very attractive at the moment in the bond space is high yield bonds. Now, I know these are a bit more riskier, but you're getting sort of eight, nine percent yields to compensate you for that risk. And as as a sector, you know, it's much better quality than it has been in the past. So that's, again, an area where we're seeing very compelling opportunities. I know that people, um, when, when they think about diversifying their portfolio, um, what, what what might they look at beyond equities and bonds? I mean, I mean what's the sort of your view on something like gold or, or infrastructure? Do you think that, that, that are they sort of things that do work to help diversify the portfolio? Yeah, I think so. And I I think, you know, when you're thinking about a diversified portfolio, gold has historically been kind of the Armageddon asset class. So I think having some exposure there, but obviously, you know, in an environment of inflation, um, it's probably not the best asset class. So, you know, again, thinking about um, things like real assets, you know, commodities, um, these tend to benefit in an inflationary environment. So if we do think, you know, we don't get back to that 2%, but inflation stays sticky at around three, four percent. Um, those could be good diversifiers in the portfolio as well. Which parts of the market actually looking a bit cheaper than than other parts at the moment? I'm just wondering if that, that, that might be somewhere that um, you know investors sort of perhaps might want to look at. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you know when we look at kind of um, valuations across asset classes, I think when we look towards areas like 
China and emerging markets in particular, you know, valuations are very attractive. You know, in China, Daniel is is actually a bit of an outlier here. You know, it's pretty one of the old new economies that's still experiencing that post-COVID surge. And as that economy reopens, uh, there's still a lot of that pent up demand. And I think that could be a good boost uh, for the Chinese economy. You know, last week we had a a 4.5% GDP growth number. Um, So I think, you know, China will only not only benefit for the domestic consumption, but of course, um, you know, trade in the region, whether we think about Japan or emerging markets should also benefit from that. So I think China is an area where, you know, valuations are still fairly attractive. Um, And I think, you know, as we see that reopening play out, um, there is opportunity. But of course, you've got to be mindful of the risks in China. So I think taking an active approach, you know, stop picking uh, really matters. And I think when we look broader afield at emerging markets, you know, they're at about a 43% discount to develop markets. You know, they benefit from China reopening. Um, when we look at the earnings picture, you know, I talked about possible downgrades in the US and here in Europe, but a lot of that pain has already been priced into emerging markets. So there could be upside when we see some recovering there. Uh, but also, you know, Daniel, the key thing here is around the dollar. Um, you know, the dollar has been very strong over the last two decades it is starting to weaken and I think if we see you know the US going into recession and those growth rate differentials starting to come down again I think that could be a very strong tailwind uh, for emerging markets um, and and China. Well Ritu Bahora from T. Rowe Price thank you ever so much for joining us on the podcast. That's great thank you so much Daniel. Dan talking to Ritu Vahora, Asset Manager at T. Rowe Price. Now, one thing that I've been asked about a lot this week are comments made by Hugh Pill, the Bank of England's top economist, who said that people are going to have to get used to being poorer if the UK inflation rate is going to fall significantly. Now, he does have a point, Dan, that if we are not going to see wage inflation become really entrenched in the UK, then we're going to have to get to a point where, you know, prices aren't going up. Because at the moment you get a price going up, then you sort of take a look and think, I can't afford to pay for that. So you go to your boss and say, can I have a pay rise? And they maybe say yes, although not keeping up with inflation for the most part. But then your boss is taking a look and thinking, hang on, I'm giving all these pay rises. I'm going to have to charge more. So then you go to the shop and you're having to pay more. And that is certainly something that the Bank of England is trying to stamp out because at 10.1%, you know, the UK inflation is still way above the bank's target. But You can imagine the furore which came about as part of, uh, in reaction to these comments from Hugh Pill, who is obviously on a pretty significant whack. And when you think about the impact to his cost of living, to his living standards, compared with someone on the minimum wage, you can understand why unions have been pretty cross. Yeah, I mean, you you were talking about brands earlier. They've been pushing up prices, but actually, there's quite a few of them are talking about how volumes have fallen. I wonder if we're at that tipping point now. Well, clearly, we are. If volumes are falling, where um, companies can't keep pushing up these prices, the consumer is talking and they're voting with their feet, and so they're saying, you know, enough's enough. Um, certain products we can't afford it anymore. And if you're a, if you're a, a company. Um, I don't know. Just imagine how many rounds of price 
increases you might have pushed through over the last 18 months. Um, you must be aware that you can't just can't keep doing this all the time. So you know, if you're one of the big stories we've had this year is tech companies cutting costs, um, reducing the number of people that they employ. Um, and I think that if we saw a moderation in, in the pace of wage inflation, because um, companies are thinking twice about having to push through, well, then, of course, that will trickle through, won't it? You, you've got um, you know, people who will perhaps spend a little less if um, the demand for some of these products go down. And then, of course, you know, they can't keep pushing up prices. And then that, hopefully that will cool inflation. So you can see where the, the, you know, you know, Hugh Pill is sort of um, is coming from, but it will take time to sort of feed through to the system. I mean, what did you, it, I think the, you know, the Bank of England comes under a lot of criticism for um, perhaps being slightly out of touch with what's going on. And, um, but I think you know, I can understand what they're trying to say. Um, perhaps it's just the way they go about saying it is the issue. <laughs> we were always warned that raising interest rates in order to combat inflation was going to be painful. We were warned that potentially it would see a recession. We were warned that it would see job cuts. But it's not until you're actually in it and you feel it in your own life and you're looking at your own budget and you know noticing that what you're able to buy and the standard of living that you've got is significantly lower than it was. It's only then that you sort of go, oh, yeah, they were right. I don't like this. And, you know, politically, it's a really difficult place to be in, which I guess is why you've got members of the Monetary Policy Committee coming out and making these comments rather than, uh, you know, government ministers who don't want to be associated with this at all. <laughs> well, that's all we've got time for this week. Next week, we'll update you on how the rest of those sort of fang stocks are looking. Plus, Danny, I know you've been talking renewables. Yeah, I've been chatting to Tom Williams, the investment manager of Downing Renewables and Infrastructure Trust. He had some pretty strong words about how the UK is responding to that US Inflation Reduction Act, which is seeing so much investment head across the Atlantic. So I'll be back in the hot seat again next week. And with me will be Asia Bell's Head of Investment Analysis, Laith Calaf. So don't forget to subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening uh, so you don't miss an episode. So until next week, thanks very much for listening. We'll catch you next time. Bye. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor.